This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Keith Potretz, Democratic candidate for the United States Senate in Colorado. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. So why are you running for the Senate? Biggest reason why I'm running for Senate is that as I've been watching politics and I've been seeing kind of the landscape of what's going on, I'm starting to realize that the people no longer have a voice for themselves. And what's happening is that people in Washington and people in, you know, even in, in local state um, offices are really running for what they want. And they're doing things that allow them to stuff their pockets and they're allowing them to kind of fund their own, kind of fund their own agenda rather than paying attention to what, what's important and what the people want. You know, I, I already served once being in the military. I've already you know served the public once. I kind of felt that this was a really good way to kind of give back to my community and, and allow people um, to get that voice back in, in Washington. And could you tell us about your policy priorities? So I, I do have a few, and, and I know that, you know, it's uh, obviously an ever-exhaustive list that continues to grow. But for me personally, the, the biggest things that matter the most to me is, is addressing homelessness, um, specifically homelessness in Colorado, but also uh, homelessness that affects veterans. Um, education is a really big and very important thing for me. And then, of course, uh, handling the ADA, which I know is kind of off the bar for a lot of people, but um, the ADA is... Uh, very important to me. And when it comes to homelessness, do you believe that housing should be a right? I do. I do. I, I, I believe that housing uh, should not only be a right, but it also should be made affordable for everybody. There should be no reason that we have anybody on the streets when we have the ability to provide housing for people. There, There is a community in Ohio, funded by a nonprofit, of course, that builds small homes uh, specifically for veterans, but I could see this being expanded for the homeless population in general. And essentially what they are is they're equal friend, eco-friendly homes. People get into these homes and it allows them a place to stay while they try to get back on their feet, while they're trying to find a job and seeking mental help if, if they need that or seeking substance abuse help and being able to have a roof over their heads for themselves and their children and not be subject to living in, you know, say a cardboard box or underneath a bridge. And in regards to disability rights, in 2017 and 2018, the GOP, along with a fair number of Democrats, tried to gut the ADA. What is currently the state of the ADA and disability rights? With specifics to that, um, I will be truthful, and I haven't done too much on that. For me, it's more about the rights of 
people with disabilities and the ability to use service dogs or sorry, service animals. And, and that's kind of more where I'm focused on, uh, mainly because I train service animals for veterans and those who need them in a general uh, scope. Truthfully, that's kind of what I'm more focused on is, is making sure that we have access to not only, you know, service dogs and, and, uh, service animals in general, but also defining those laws and those rules that make up what service dogs or sorry, service animals and, um, uh, emotional support animals are. Um, however, uh, more information wise, I, I can, I can reach back out to you at another time, um, and kind of give you some more detailed explanation on that. The U.S. Senate is obviously the upper chamber of Congress. It's a pretty important office. Why start with this office in particular? What about the Senate is appealing to you? And how are you going to handle the unique responsibilities of the Senate? Growing up, I was always taught to shoot for the stars and and kind of uh, achieve your dreams uh, the best that you can. And, you know, I, I did consider runs for Congress or my local city council and those kinds of things. But while being able to affect the change in my community, I realized that we don't just need a change there. We need, we need people in the Senate who want a change overall. In my eyes, running for Senate is a way for me to affect change on a bigger scale. And you know, really approaching the uniqueness that is the Senate and, you know, kind of coming in as an outsider makes it a little difficult, but, you know, it's really being able to represent the state of Colorado in a, in a good way and, and showing the people that there are, are representatives and there are senators and congressmen and women that, that want to hear people. And that's what I'm all about, is wanting to hear people. So the uniqueness is that it's such a, an important part of our government. But it's not just that. I think it's being able to, 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 being able to listen to people, too. And in what is sure to be a very crowded race against your Republican incumbent, what about your background and experiences makes you the best candidate for the Democratic Party? I already have experience in public service. You know, I served in the military for almost six years. Um, I did a wide variety of jobs in the military, and, and that experience, that leadership experience that I was instilled with, is really what I think I bring to the table the most. Uh, we, we have a saying in the Navy. And it's upholding the, upholding the Navy Corps values, and that's honor, courage, and commitment. Taking values like that, and the fact that I've lived with them since I got out, is, is you know, a big advantage that I have. I also do nonprofit work, and I've seen what, I, I've seen people affected. You know, I've seen people affected, for example, with, with service dogs, because that's one of the, the primary things that I do. And I've seen what it's like have a service dog and for example the VA doesn't recognize service dogs as a treatment for PTSD. So I've seen veterans struggle with unable or not being able to, to provide or get funds from the VA to help them get a service dog. You know, I've been homeless. I've lived paycheck to paycheck. 
truthfully, I kind of still do live paycheck to paycheck. I know what it's like to be down and out and not feel like anybody cares that you've been completely forgotten. I think what happens today is a lot of people are out of touch, um, especially our senators and, and our congressmen and women. And I think it's because, you know, they, they're kind of up there and they're, they're not home. They're not coming back and seeing what people are going through on a day-to-day basis. You know, they have a tendency to ignore and that, that bothers people. It bothers me. So I really believe that, you know, military experience and the nonprofit experience and I guess just my life experience in general um, really brings a different perspective to the table. And how would you go about ensuring that you don't become like any other disconnected corporate senator? What measures are you taking to ensure that you are accountable to the people? So for me, the biggest thing is not accepting super PAC money. I don't want to accept money from anybody that I can't trace back myself. You know, we have the tools at our disposal. We are able to research online and find where these PACs and these super PACs get their money from. And for me, that's a big, that's a big standout from what other candidates um, will take from. You know, we have, just as an example, there are PACs that help get veterans voted into office. Well, I would be willing to have a conversation with a PAC like that only if they were transparent about the money and where they're receiving their funds from. I think that's a big thing. I, I think what happens is that we're not able to trace it and we're not able to find where money comes from. And I think what happens is people just kind of discredit or they just kind of blow it off, you know. Oh, that's just another that's just another person who got bought out by the, you know, fossil fuel industry or that's another person who got fought out by you know, bought out by the uh, pharmaceutical industry. So I really think that the the one thing I'm gonna do, or the one thing I am doing that makes me stand out in that sense is is not, you know, not accepting money that I don't know where it's coming from. Um, another big thing is um, my dedication to ensuring that I'm surrounding myself with people from all walks of lives, all, all walks of life, you know? And I think with that, it allows me to still stay connected from the constituents in Colorado and being able to really find out what makes them tick. How how would you go about holding corporate money accountable in Washington? No, I think the the biggest thing with that, you know, you know people we we've seen in the news cycle and we've seen online, you know, AOC is talking about how the first week that they're in Congress they sit down and they meet a bunch of lobbyists. And I, I think we really need to move away um, in our government, we need to move away from those types of lobbyists, you know, especially the ones who have vested interest in, you know, for example, fossil fuels or big pharma. And so the biggest thing is being able to stand firm with lobbyists and letting them know, you know, that no longer, or, or rather we need to, we need to make a commitment that we are no longer going to allow them to build our policy based on the money that they're giving us. Um, we need, Full transparency. Uh, everybody in this nation, everybody has a right to know who's lobbying who, who's receiving money from these lobbyists. Um, and generally, you can find that information. You know, it is public knowledge. The FEC requires the filings. But I, I think that there are a lot of what you could call backdoor politics, where you know people are in their offices and they're doing these deals behind closed doors 
It's like as a way, in my opinion, that it's trying to keep the public out. So I, I think we really need to publicize and make public knowledge, you know, more of what the lobbyists are doing. And I think by putting them on blast, that that kind of, you know, sends a strong signal that this new group that's coming in, and, and even with the new Congress that's in, you know, being able to uh, kind of fight back that way. And in regards to lobbyists, we've seen a lot of attention on how lobbyists influence healthcare policy. The Intercept recently reported that Wendell Primus, the top health policy aide to uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, reassured healthcare executives that Democratic leadership would work to kill any single-payer legislation. We've seen discussion of what Medicare for all means in terms of the health insurance industry. Of course, we have people like Bernie Sanders saying that we need to eliminate the private market, while Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren have waffled a bit. What are your thoughts on healthcare and how and should we eliminate the private market? I think the biggest thing that we need to look at is eliminating the the private market right out the door is not going to help. You know, you know, it's not going to help anything. In fact, it's probably going to create more pandemonium than it is anything. And we need to. Um, we need to have a transition period that allows people to kind of pick, you know. You were mentioning Bernie Sanders and, and you know, Bernie Sanders with a few other senators, specifically Senator Gillibrand, where, you know, she she's worked on the transition program, part of the bill that Bernie Sanders wants to introduce. Um, and, and personally, like for me, that really resounded, you know, really sounded with me. You know, you have an optional buy-in. That optional buy-in is you know, a 4% uh, buy-in of your income that's paid directly to healthcare and not the premiums. So what we're able to do there is, is we're, you know, bolstering healthcare directly instead of relying on insurance companies to do it for us. You know, we, we can't, the biggest thing I guess is, you know, is, is transition. Allowing people to choose is a really good way for us to get into this single, you know, single payer, having an optional buy-in. People who already have insurance through their companies that they work for, give them the option. You know, you can, you can buy into Medicaid or you can keep the current insurance that you have. And that gives us a window that allows us to transition people who don't have insurance into Medicaid. And it kind of helps us relieve some of that stress because we all know that when that when that bill comes that that you know insurance companies and and that kind of thing they're going to the private system's going to push back very hard so if we can create a bill that kind of doesn't you know that doesn't give them the ammo to push back i think we're really going to be able to get people on board and cover more people in this country people who don't have insurance people who should have insurance. Um, a little personal tidbit here. My father had a stroke in 2017. And as a result of the stroke, he wasn't able to work any longer. And we got him on the Social Security disability. And because of his Social Security, he was not eligible for Medicaid. Because of that, it took us a year to get him on to Medicaid that pays for assisted living so that he can get physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy and all these things that he needs in order to regain control of you know the right side of his body and being able to speak again. And that 
that really hit home. That's it's really hard to watch a family member struggle, and it happens all the time. I've talked to people who've told me stories that they've had to divorce their spouses in order to be eligible for Medicaid and Medicare, and that kind of stuff is just it just blows my mind when people tell me these kinds of things. You know, I, I was I've been on Medicaid before. I had no, you know, I had to have a job, and and that kind of insurance. It's really good to know that that people or, or that you're covered. You know, so. I really think that we need to focus on making sure that, you know, the marginalized and disadvantaged groups are able to get health care. One of the biggest impediments to passing major progressive legislation like Medicare for All is the legislative filibuster. Democrats are currently in the minority in the Senate. The odds of Democrats ever achieving a veto-proof majority in our lifetime is slim to none. Do you support eliminating the legislative filibuster? You know, I, I do support that. I, I think that at any time where we're able to sit down and drag our feet on a bill simply because, you know, the other side doesn't like it is a time that we're doing a disadvantage to the American public. Um, you know, we, we all understand, you know, the filibuster was really created originally as a way for, you know, people to discuss and debate and you know people aren't comfortable so we're going to do filibuster and we're going to you know kind of get our voices heard now really a filibuster is used because we're just trying to make the other side look bad and i think we need to get away from the you know from that we're republicans and we're democrats we really need to look forward to to bipartisan cooperation and a filibuster is not the way to have bipartisan uh, collaboration. It, it's just really a way for people to to hold on to things and keep them from becoming a law. And one of the key responsibilities of the Senate is judicial and cabinet confirmations. What are your thoughts on Donald Trump's major nominees? for the cabinet and judicial positions, and how would you have approached them if you had been a U.S. senator? Um, so me personally, you know, we, we have, we've had quite the, the, the road trip here, you know. Um, I certainly think that the importance of listening to all, all sides of a story is so that you can formulate your own opinions. And I think what's happening, or what's happening, is that people are not doing that. You know, uh, in, in the case of, for example, Brett Kavanaugh, I think what happened was that Republicans are so scared to do something that contradicts Trump that they won't even they they won't even talk about it. You know, oh yeah, we're, let's just let's go ahead and approve this nomination. We don't even you know we're not even going to deal with it. We need to, uh, or, or me personally, I'm the kind of person that wants data. I'm a data-driven guy. I really enjoy reading statistics. I enjoy reading both sides of a story um, because I like to formulate my own opinions. I don't, I don't just, you know, see something and go, okay, well that makes sense. So for me, when it comes to uh, confirmations, I, I really want to see both sides. And, you know, 
like I said with Brett Kavanaugh, I, I don't really think there were, Democrats were really hard about it, and Republicans were kind of, you know, fast and furious or, or, or loose about it, if you want to say. Um, and then, you know, we, we have people like William Barr. And, you know, William Barr is, uh, you know, people are really nervous about him because they're worried about protecting, you know, the Mueller investigation and uh, what he's going to be releasing and protecting that investigation as a whole. And, and you know, Barr has really kind of played both sides of that, that coin, you know, sometimes saying, yeah, you know, I, I want to, but when Democrats kind of start to pick a little bit, like, you know, if a president was found to have obstructed justice, you know, can we, would you, would you consider pursuing, you know, a legal avenue towards the president? And, and when he doesn't give a, a suffice of an answer, um, I think that we're running into problems. So we really need to kind of hunker down on our resolve that asking the tough questions are okay. You know, it doesn't matter what the media says. It doesn't matter what other, you know, what other um, senators say. If we want to know an answer to a question, then any person in the Senate should have that right to ask that question, no matter the backlash, you know, because I, I think we've kind of gone away from asking questions if we really want to know the answer to, because we fear the media backlash. We fear the, you know, constitu constituents backlashing at us over, you know, over a question. Um, I think Cody Booker is doing a really good job about handling his questions, and, and I think more people should strive to be willing to ask what's on their mind. And what in your mind makes a judicial or a cabinet nominee? What traits, what qualities, what answers would disqualify a nominee? I can be really specific here. If we're, if we're voting on a, you know attorney general, for example, uh, not so much William Barr, but just as a general, um, you know, the biggest thing is, is experience, of course. Seeing that, uh, you know, the experience in, um, in law, knowing that they're or being able to have the integrity to recluse themselves. Um, for me, protecting the Mueller investigation, pursuing avenues of uh, eviction when it comes to um, anybody regardless of whether or not they're, they're president, to me, those things are very important because we have to maintain our judiciary system. And if we're going to confirm people whose interest is not for the people, but their interest is for other, other people in the government, I think we're doing a disadvantage or a disservice to the American people. So that's that's a big thing for me. It's really experience and knowing that they're there to do the service of the American people. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And you've talked a lot about supporting marginalized people. What exactly is your justice platform and how would you go about doing so in regards to specific issues facing those communities? So I read recently very disturbing, very disturbing article with regards to the advisor that advised President Nixon in the uh, 60s. What I read was that the war on drugs was created to criminalize people of color and the anti-war left. And this gentleman, this advisor to Nixon, openly admitted this in, in 1994. And the reason why I bring this up is that it is unethical to uh, pursue somebody because of their race or to pursue somebody because of their sexual orientation or um, their income or anything like that. So in our justice system, we have a tendency to put these uh, groups on blast. You know, we're, we're, we're convicting people of crimes that, and, and giving the maximum sentences even, you know, that, for example, marijuana. You know, we're giving people maximum sentences for having an, an ounce of marijuana on them. Uh, and generally, what it is is it's somebody of color. And, and that's not okay. So we need, to, we need to be reforming our justice system in a way that allows everybody to receive the same penalty for the same thing. It doesn't matter. You know, what matters is the crime that was committed. You know, if, if somebody murders somebody, they need to go to prison for it. It doesn't matter if they're white or if they're black or if they're Latino or or anything like that. What matters is that they committed this crime and that crime is concurrent with a punishment. So I think we really need to move away from this criminalization of uh, minority groups. And by doing so, I think we will start to alleviate, alleviate some of the pressure and some of the overcrowding in our jails. And do you support legalizing marijuana and ending the war on drugs? I certainly support the legalization of marijuana. I mean, I, I live in Colorado, you know, and Colorado is is one of those states that I find to be very forward-thinking. And on the state level, decriminalizing marijuana has really opened avenues to other things for people, you know, uh, the use of medicinal marijuana and not always jumping to opioids to help with chronic pain being able to use marijuana and CBD instead, you know, and it's helping these people recover and they're not getting addicted. So, yes, I do support the legalization of marijuana. When it comes to the war on drugs, I think we need to be very specific about what we're looking at. In the military, I uh, 
worked as an I worked on counter narcotic operations off the coast of uh, Guatemala and Ecuador. And what we saw was not people who wanted to smuggle drugs into our country. What we found was people who were being forced and coerced into smuggling drugs into our country. You know, the cartels are holding their families and saying, you're going to do this or we're going to kill your family. These guys don't have a choice. So I think what we need to do is reprioritize what we're looking at, at least in terms of drugs, because like I said before, picking out minority groups and saying these are the re- these people are the reason why you know drugs are rampant in our society and in our communities is wrong. I think what what we need to do is take a step back and really look at redefining what we mean when we say we're we're having a war on drugs. And what is your criminal justice platform? So I think we need to re-educate our communities when it comes to crimes that are being committed at large. You know, and and being able to support local law enforcement and and I think criminal justice, you know, obviously that all ties into crimes and, ja- and jailing people and and that kind of thing. I think we can benefit from programs that allow after people who have committed felonies and they come back into society, these people have already paid their debt. So I really think reintegration programs and being able to get these people back to what you could what you could call like full status citizens, being able to vote in our elections. Um, depending on the crime, obviously not allowing more serious crime, um, people who've committed serious felonies, obviously not, you know, no path to, you know, gun ownership or, or something like that, but um, people who got caught with, you know, drugs and got a felony because of it doesn't mean that they're a menace to our society. A lot of this is being able, you know, like I've said before, being able to take a step back and, and being able to really see who's not, who's being disadvantaged by our, our laws. And for me, it's decreasing jail populations and working on reintegration of people in jail back into our society so that they can become productive members of our society. And of course, education is one of the biggest issues to our audience. What is your education platform? There, there are a couple subtopics here. The biggest one for me is getting STEAM back in or, or STEAM into our schools. Um, so STEAM being science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. I'm just about finished with my computer science degree. So I have a very strong opinion when it comes to uh, children and school-age children having access to technology. We need to be able to we we need to be able to get lower-income schools computers and tablets and the teachers that can teach subjects that some of these students are interested in. For example, computer science. Um, being able to learn how to how to operate Windows, or being able to learn, you know, how to make basic programs or basic websites. These skills are very important in our society as technology advances and moves forward. And we have a large shortage in this country 
of people who are graduating with degrees in computer science. And that's okay because there are other alternatives that have popped up. We have things that they call coding boot camps. These, these boot camps are, you know, 18 or 24 week courses. Essentially, it's a crash course. And once you finish, you're guaranteed a job. They help you find a job as a programmer or a web server administrator, things like that. That's a big thing for me. Um, another big issue is trade schools. I think the privatized college has really pushed how bad trade schools are for our country. What they're not telling people is that we need trade schools because we need skilled laborers. We need people to fix our cars. We need people to hang our electrical wires. We need plumbers and electricians. And I really feel that we need to focus on these trade schools and allow people who don't want to go to college the opportunity to pursue these if they choose. So that's a big one for me. Another one is teacher pay. Particularly in the state of Colorado, the average teacher makes about $45,000 a year. That's about $7,000 less than the uh, national average. So we need to figure out a way to bolster our school system in Colorado so that teachers can get paid more. So they kind of have more of an incentive to want to come and teach our children. You know, I'm not a teacher. I can't speak to some of those issues that they, that they have. But what I can say is I know the biggest one that I've been seeing is that they have to pay for their own school supplies. I don't think that's okay. I think that teachers should be provided those supplies to help their students because if they're not making a lot of money and they're living in a place where the median income is, you know, $55,000, $60,000 a year, they're probably barely living paycheck to paycheck. They can't afford to go out and buy school supplies for 50 children. So we need to support our teachers better. We need to make sure that they continue to have a voice in our government. Something we don't hear Democrats talk a lot about is foreign policy. What is your foreign policy platform? Foreign policy. So foreign policy, in my opinion, ties into a couple of different things. You know, we have all of these different agreements. You know, we've got, you know, the UN. We had uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. We have ties, or not ties, but, uh, you know, Venezuela and, and our countries to the south of us that, that need our help. And we need to provide humanitarian aid to them. You know, we need, we need to help them. They're our allies, and we should, you know, obviously not to a point where we're hurting the American economy, but we need to do what we can to help, you know, bolster them a little bit. People have come to our aid all of the time. And what happens is, is we are promoting a foreign policy that goes, I'm not going to help you because you did this. And so deal with it, you know, and they actually need our help. From a service member perspective, I do not think that we should be withdrawing troops out of the Middle East in such huge huge numbers because what's going to happen is once we leave, terrorist organizations are able to come back in and regroup and retake back and, and undo a lot of the work that we've done over there. You know, there are you know, uh, uh, 
terrorism abroad and domestic terrorism is something that we really need to be addressing and not ignoring and, and not just saying, oh, okay, well, we took care of it. Because generally speaking, we didn't, you know, and, and we shouldn't be ignoring intelligence. I think that's a big one for me. That's one that really uh, irks me is, is, is people ignoring what the, what the intelligence community is saying to us. You know, if they're telling us that ISIS isn't defeated, then ISIS isn't defeated, and we need to address that, and we need to reevaluate how we're handling, you know, uh, troop deployments and things like that in in those countries. Um, not only that, but you know, as as I'm sure you're leading into it, border security is a huge part of our foreign policy. So, you know, having people know that they can still come to our country to seek employment or to seek asylum is a really big thing. We, we get a lot of people that cross our borders every day. We get a lot of people that seek asylum and, and you know, work visas or education visas that want to come and be productive members of our society. And we need to reaffirm that. We need to tell them, yes, if you want to come to our country, you can come to our country. Here's our process. You know, we welcome, we welcome you with open arms. I don't, I'm not for just letting, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ignoring border security. I'm not ignoring those kinds of things because they're incredibly important. You know, we obviously can't let, you know, you know, like, like it's been described so many times before that we just want open borders and all these people to just walk on in. And that's not the case at all. As Democrats, we support, you know, a very strong stance on border security. And I think that that border security and foreign policy really go hand in hand because, you know, not only are we helping people from different countries in the sense that we're allowing them to immigrate, but we're also helping, you know, we should be helping countries like Venezuela who need our help or, um, you know, um, helping Syrian refugees or helping um, the people in Afghanistan. So I really think that we need to, to double down and, and, and focus on ways that we can help but Obviously, help why we're protecting American interests, of course, you know, because um, this is America, this is where we live. But I don't think that we shouldn't adopt a policy that, you know, everybody can go away and it's just us, because that's not the case. And before we touch on immigration, I'd like to look at Venezuela. Right now, we are seeing the U.S. threaten military intervention in Venezuela to support the coup, in which opposition leader Juan Guaido, whose party ran no candidate, in the January election and who resides over a governmental body, the National Assembly, with a 70% disapproval rating, according to an opposition-aligned poll, declared himself president and refuses to engage in discussion with the current government. U.S. officials, including Marco Rubio, John Bolton, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, have explicitly stated that the U.S. intervention is about oil. Venezuela has the world's largest proven oil reserves. Juan Guaido has stated that his top priority economically is to open up the country to private foreign investors. He also supports U.S. sanctions that Alfred Desaias, the first U.N. rapporteur to visit Venezuela in over two decades, says are starving Venezuelans and amount to economic warfare, quote, comparable to medieval sieges of towns. That quote is from the official U.N. report he issued. Do you believe that what the U.S. is doing in Venezuela and U.S. foreign policy on Venezuela are appropriate? You know, we have a history of uh, propping up 
a, a coup to a government that allows us to kind of get what we want. Um, you know, the biggest thing, like you had mentioned there, was oil. Um, we we're, you know, we we're driven by oil. And that's a big thing. And people have a tendency to look the other way when it comes to that. So that's good that you brought that up. And I say that because we, you know, like I said before, we have a tendency to kind of support coups or governments that work in the best interest of us. Instead of supporting uh, governments or, or coups that, you know, are the best interest of the people that live there. We don't know the day-to-day -day of what's going on in Venezuela. You know, um, the, Cana the Canadian Prime Minister says that they have uh, pledged $40 million in humanitarian aid for Venezuela um, to help them. And these funds that they're going to give them are going to trust the partners outside of the country um, so that they can ensure that those funds are being used appropriately. For us, we should be doing something very similar. We need to put oil and coups and all of these things on the back table, and we need to get the people in Venezuela taken care of. We need to support them, and we need to help get them back on their feet. And if oil is such a big deal, then we need to address that at a later time. Because right now, that's not, that's not what's important. What's important is helping the people of Venezuela. And we get lost when we start to see big dollar signs. So, no, I don't support our foreign policy when it comes to Venezuela because I think we should be focusing on humanitarian efforts. And what do you think about sanctions as foreign policy? You know, as we're seeing, in many different aspects, you know, sanctions can be beneficial in terms of um, kind of forcing the hand of people or calling bluff. Um, and, and so in that sense, I think that that could be um, beneficial to us, but I really don't think that sanctions are the way to go because I think what happens is that people kind of just blow them off, especially governments in other countries. They're going to do what they're going to do regardless of whether or not we put sanctions on them. And I think that we have seen that time and time again. Um, but putting sanctions on a country, especially if it's economic sanctions or um, things of that nature, I really think threaten those countries more than just um, a short-term benefit to get to get what you know what we're after, so to speak. Short or long-term, what happens is it starts to affect people directly and them not being able to get you know care that they need or not being able to um, uh, get the support that they need from others so i don't i don't think the sanctions are a very effective means of, of really anything i think negotiations and bringing people to the table and really having good conversations is more effective and looking into immigration, I'd like to go back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. I want to go back to 1882 because the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is the legislation that criminalized undocumented status, 
and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution, I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yuting case, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. The quote is in regards to deportation. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken from home and family and friends, and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment, and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Would you agree with this dissent? Hmm. <laughs> um... that point, we are turning people into nothing and, you know, pretty much telling them goodbye and taking everything that they have and making them nothing. And that's, that's, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to get back to you on that one. Okay, great. And recently, there's been increased focus on the fact that in 2003, uh, post 9-11, immigration was taken out of the Department of Justice and placed in the newly created Department of Homeland Security, which means that immigration is treated as a national security threat rather than a matter of due process in the Department of Justice. Do you believe that that move was appropriate? I think at the time that move was appropriate. You know, we, we had just went through 9-11. Bush was really pushing ways that helped extend and protect Americans on American soil. You know, something like that we had never, obviously we, we had never had anything like that happen before. And I think that the response was equal to what had happened. And I think where we're at now is we're way past that. And I think we really need to sit back down and reorganize things a little bit. And what should that reorganization look like? So I have been seeing a lot of people talking about bringing ICE out of DHS and kind of moving it back more to a judiciary type, um, due process type organization. Um, and I really support something like that. You know, it, people are coming into our country seeking asylum or seeking um, visas. And those are, you know, those those go through the government. They're not... They're not terrorists. They're not people looking to come to do harm to us. They're they're people looking for a better life. And I don't think we should be treating them like terrorists. I think that sets a horrible precedent. And it truthfully makes, Amer makes America as a whole kind of look paranoid. And like I said, at the time, yes. But now we're at a point where organizations like ICE really need to be more of a a, a judiciary type organization that's there to help uh, you know help speed along the process instead of seeking out and finding illegal immigrants and just deporting them or or criminalizing them so to speak even when they have done nothing wrong other than okay and 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 being in our country illegal is illegal, but sometimes the system fails people. 
you know, just like the system fails Americans. And so we need to be finding clearer ways to citizenship instead of just booting everybody out because it doesn't fix anything. And would you agree with the sentiment that no human is illegal? I would agree with that sentiment. And I say that because no human is illegal. If you were to leave America for whatever reason, and let's say it was because you were being persecuted by your own country for for your race, just as an example, and you fled to Canada, and in turn, Canada criminalized you and then kicked you out, it would make you feel about as big as, as you know, about as big as an ant. So, yeah. How can folks get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? So I am on pretty much every social media. I'm, I'm on Facebook um, under Keith for Colorado. Um, you can go to my website, KeithForColorado.com. I'm also on uh, Twitter under Keith4CO. Uh, um, and those are the biggest places that I'm, I'm active. Uh, I, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's where you can find me at. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and telling us about your candidacy. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Of course. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to subscribe to the Millennial Politics Podcast on iTunes. Tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.